Welcome back. Um, so, just in quick summary, silver has been demonetized. The West wants things and eventually wants things without being able to pay for it. And then they sort of commit shenanigans. So, this is where we're up to. Professor, we'll continue a bit and then I'm sure we'll move on to a lively discussion. Professor. Thank you, Sandeep. It's my special pleasure to introduce Dr. Theo Megali, uh, who lives in Bavaria, in fact, not very far from here, Plotling. And he's a uh, uh, psychiatrist by uh, profession, but a, a great uh, scholar of monetary history and uh, theory. In particular, he is a member of a group uh, which wants to keep the memory and the theories of Heinrich Rittershausen alive. Heinrich Rittershausen, a German economist, was born in uh, the late 19th century. No, okay. Uh, he, uh, my memory is that he is almost contemporaneous with uh, the 20th century, and uh, he uh, came into prominence in the early. Uh, 1930s, just the beginning of the uh, Great Depression, uh, which he predicted, which he predicted. And he also predicted another uh, disaster, which goes back earlier. I think in 1909, the uh, uh, First the French government and soon after the German government uh, declared the banknotes of the central bank of each country legal tender. Now in retrospect you can see this was in preparation to the Great War, which most people didn't have any idea that it would be such a prolonged and devastating conflict. And uh, Rittershausen, soon after this happened in 1909, predicted the, uh, that uh, this is now uh, the so-called black hole, the, the uh, uh, legal tender provision or protection, I would say, because that's what it is, protecting paper money. You see, without legal tender, it's gold and silver. With legal tender, it can be cut out, gold and silver, on the shortest of notice which happened in 1914. So I have very, very great respect for 
uh, Heinrich for von Rettelshausen, and uh, tongue-in-cheek in one of my papers I compared him to uh, Keynes, not as great economist, but, but I thought or I said that if Rittershausen had been born in England and Keynes in Germany, the world would look very different because, you know, Rittershausen deserved the same fame what the world has accorded to Keynes, and Keynes deserves <laughs> the, <laughs> the uh, role of an unknown German because very few people, I, I really doubt if they even teach uh, the uh, great uh, monographs which Rittershausen wrote on, on gold and silver and the monetary systems in general. So I'm welcoming Theo and I'm uh, hoping that we can have some cooperation in the future. Uh, by the way, he is a charter member because the very first in that series, first we called it, uh, what did we call it? Goals and then University, university. In and in live, yeah. Because even prior to that, there was a goals and the university in the internet. So then it was goals and university live in a Hungarian city on the western border of Hungary. Sombatheide was the first meeting many years. I hate to. <laughs> Remember how many years ago was that? 2006, maybe. 2006. And Theo was, uh, I call him a charter member because he was there, and uh, very few actually. Uh, I don't remember, six, seven people, not more than that. Not more than that. Uh, so, uh, that's welcome, uh, welcome to you, and I hope we can find a possibility to cooperate again in the future. <clears throat> Going back to my lecture, I uh, talked about China, I talked about how advanced Chinese civilization was uh, in in the uh, 15th century or earlier and uh, how the trade between China and Western countries started and became uh, ugly. I had a thought, we talked about the Opium Wars starting in 1830 and the Second Opium War ended in 1860. And I asked the rhetorical question, were these Opium Wars or were these Silver 
wars. I think just with just as much justification we could say these were silver wars. Now, uh, in uh, 1860 they made this uh, peace treaty again, which was very humiliating to China again, and uh, gave further extraterritorial, extraterritorial rights to traders, missionaries and others on Chinese soil. Uh, but the peace wasn't to last, uh, but it took a different form. The Chinese, obviously, Chinese imperial government realized that uh, they just don't have the military power to resist uh, the Western powers uh, and the coalition of these Western powers, which now has been enlarged because in addition to Britain, France and the United States, and I think Portugal always assisted in some ways, now other great powers joined. Germany is also uh, participated in that lucrative trade with China and took advantage of the weakness of China and established. In fact, uh, uh, Shanghai looked like Berlin later because it had French sector, it had an American sector, British sector, and I think a German sector as well, and the Japanese sector as well. So there was this coalition of Western or even Eastern like Japan countries lined up inside of China against China. And then uh, something happened which showed that the problems are very, very far from having been solved. And this, this is known as the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, it started in 1898 and it ended by 1901. The Boxer Rebe Rebellion uh, claimed a lot of victims, people who died. They were Westerners, soldiers, civil servants, merchants, missionaries, along with many Chinese Christians. The uh, rebels uh, were rural people, rural Chinese people who were dispossessed or uh, put in uh, subordinate position, they lost the, their land, there was famine and so on. And <clears throat> and uh, so the, the, this was a rebellion. 
which claimed a lot of lives. It was a reaction to these humiliating uh, peace treaties and uh, the chipping away of Chinese authority over Chinese land and this frustration uh, came to the surface in the form of, of that bloody rebellion. Well, that was an excuse that the uh, uh, coalition of the countries uh, whose name, uh, names I mentioned uh, formally entered the fray with soldiers. They recruited an army of some 20,000 armed soldiers who came to China and fought the boxer rebels, defeated them, but they also defeated the Chinese Imperial Army, which was really just an observer. They didn't in, uh, fight the Chinese official army, uh, but there's no question that <laughs> the uh, imperial uh, government sympathized with the rebels and their, their cause although it didn't initiate it, but once the, the uh, rebellion was in full force, they couldn't conceal their sympathy. So, uh, there was another it wasn't called peace treaty, but another treaty which ended the Boxer Rebellion and the once more the Chinese imperial government was penalized. They had to pay an indemnity to the West uh, in the order of 67 million pounds which was more than the Chinese imperial government's entire annual tax revenue. It was payable over 39 years to every one of the eight countries in the alliance. Now, in spite of this new humiliation, unequal treaty and indemnities to the uh, eight allied powers, China remained suspect in the eyes of the Western imperialist governments. For them, China remained a sleeping dragon with a poisonous fang. And the poisonous fang had to be removed lest another boxer rebellion break out. The poisonous fang of China had to be removed and that fang was silver. You see, China over the centuries got 
associated with silver. And the movement was started earlier, as we have seen, 1873, this underhanded demonetization of silver <coughs> came back to haunt the Western countries and uh, the anti-silver movement got a reinforcement and uh, and we know it continued. The United States formally uh, introduced the gold standard in 1900, so that sealed the fate of silver money in the United States. The price of silver continued to fall until it reached its uh, bottom in the 1930s during the uh, uh, Great Depression and uh, there was no chance for silver money to rise from the dead. It's, it was pretty well out of the question and by that time uh, it was an official policy, mainly against China. Now China still had silver standard in the first half of the decade of the 1930s. And then uh, President Roosevelt in the United States, he uh, started another silver purchase policy. And this now was directly direct, uh, directed against the Chinese. Because China was still on the silver standard and as the price of silver was bid up by the American treasury in the world markets, this sucked away huge amount of silver from China. So in other words, the Chinese money supply was collapsing. And what this means, of course, we all know, is, is deflation, falling prices and all the misery which comes with falling prices. So at that time, of course, as you know, uh, the nationalist government was in power in China. <clears throat> Chiang Kai-shek is the leading name. It's now the mid mid-1930s, and this was like pulling the rug from underneath the finances of China. <coughs> China had to give up the silver standard, uh, and the year was 1935. And as a consequence, 
the Chinese economy uh, went through this convulsion, greatly <coughs> weakened, and then of course it was free prey for the Japanese, which invaded Manchuria, occupied it, and, and so on. And now, okay, in World War II, the Japanese got defeated, as we all know. However, China was so weak that it didn't have strength to resist the uh, movement of Mao Zedong. And the imperial, the nationalist government collapsed and moved to the island of uh, Taiwan. And that's where it still is, except that the, after the death of Mao Zedong, uh, China, formerly still communist, introduced capitalistic measures and uh, there was a great revival of the Chinese economy. It became extremely strong uh, financially. Uh, China became the world's greatest creditor nation. Now, there is this uh, book of Friedman which describes his conversion, uh, first believing that bimetallism was historically not viable, and that's why it collapsed, changed his mind and believed that it should have been saved by metallism, or even it was the victim of such a conspiracy. And <clears throat> so he wrote, wrote a book on that. In fact, about 10 years of his life, uh, in the uh, 1990s, he was already 80 years old, something old, and uh, he summarized his research in this book. And uh, characteristically, uh, some of the papers which he wrote prior to this book, uh, two papers were given the title, The Crime of 1873, which of course was the slogan of the Silver Eyes. So that's, that's rather interesting. Now, uh, I uh, have uh, criticized Friedman and pointed out what I think were mistakes in his uh, reasoning, in his argument, I don't disagree with the basic principle uh, which he says that the uh, that bimetallism is a monetary standard uh, did not die a natural death but it was uh, a 
was destroyed, was killed. Uh, but I am criticizing his argument that there is a natural mechanism uh, which would have made the bimetallic ratio constant. Uh, and uh, I, I thought I skipped that because this is a little bit technical and not so important from our point of view. However, if you're interested, it's in that handout, you'll find that. But I would like to definitely talk about the uh, closing remarks of Friedman, which is about the future of irredeemable currencies. You see, in a way, Friedman was the father of the irredeemable dollar. Because Friedman developed a theory that gold is completely superfluous, it's passé, it's outlived its usefulness and can be thrown out and the paper dollar will survive indefinitely, he went on saying. Uh, under certain conditions. And he introduced the idea which became known as monetarism that if you increase the money supply by no more than 3% a year, on the other hand it has to be at least 3%, so it has to be exactly 3%. That's the magic number, magic formula, which will stabilize the paper money system. And it will survive forever, paper money, which flies in the face of history because there have been innumerable attempts to replace gold and silver by paper money, and not one of them succeeded. In fact, every one of them was uh, <coughs> disastrous uh, failure and causing a lot of economic pain and uh, so it's not a viable system, irredeemable paper money. That's the lesson of history. But here comes Friedman and he says, no, the trouble is that those who issued the money like uh, Assignats and the Mandats in revolutionary France, they issued too much. And if they had greater restraint, they would have succeeded. And then he talks about <coughs> uh, uh, mechanism 
natural mechanism which uh, balances trade under such a paper money system. And uh, he claims that this is just as good or superior to the balancing mechanism of the gold standard. Uh, the, uh, the model, the gold standard model is described in the following way. Here are two countries, both gold standard countries, and one is importing more and the other is exporting less. So as a result, there will be a trade imbalance. This is the surplus country, uh, or the other way around. This is the surplus country, and this is the deficit country. Now, the, the balance has to be settled by gold payments. So here's the deficit country has to pay gold for the net extra import, okay, to, uh, to settle the imbalance. Now, as a result, the money supply expands here and shrinks there. Okay. Now, as the money supply is changing in these countries, there will be a change in prices. That's how the theory goes. Namely, since the money supply is increasing in the surplus country, prices will also increase but prices will fall here. And at one point there will be an incentive to turn this around. And the export will expand from the former deficit country 